You're listening to the 14th episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast, Shire Reckoning. I'm Mike Moore. This episode is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but it is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God, despite everyone. It is also about words, music, and dingoes. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating with the help of my wicked friends around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 14, The Dingo Song. I've always liked Arlo Guthrie's 18-minute-long comedy story-talking blues song, Alice's Restaurant. I imagine I might have heard it for the first time on the Dr. Demento show on the radio in my teens, along with Star Trekkin', Fish Heads, Dead Puppies, Shaving Cream, and friend of the show Weird Al Yankovic doing parodies of whatever was on the radio at the time. I thought it was very cool that Woody Guthrie's son Arlo had written a catchy little chorus, but then instead of doing actual verses, he just played incidental music and told a funny story. And I knew that George Thorogood had done something similar with one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer. So I stop in a local bar, you know, people. I go to the bar. I rent my coat. I call a bartender. I said, look, man, come down here. You got down there. So what you want? One bourbon. So I wanted to try it. Now Dave, one of my cousins, close in age to me, featured prominently in my brethren judging and shame dreams when I was 21 and he was 17, at the point when he started to judge me openly for my going out to movies and live music, despite remaining in fellowship in my friendly little assembly in Nepean, Ontario, Canada. In the one dream, Dave featured Bone White with big shiny black spheres of spite for eyeballs, sitting up there in the elevated lifeguard tennis ref seats to the side of the tennis court spit-warm swimming pool in which I was swimming in the dream. The tennis court swimming pool represented brethren indoctrination and was filled with dinner plate-sized equally bone-white spiders with the same shiny black spherical eyes of brethren judgment laying eggs of spaghetti maggots on my head. In the dream, my cousin was up there judging, like a tennis ref, ready to blow the whistle on any behavior that was out of bounds, like we were all raised to do. 
because in real life, Dave had started to radiate fear, suspicion, and judgment at my licentious going out to the movies at the theater instead of waiting and renting them on videotape months later. At first, he upset me by saying things about, well, you're not living right right now. People are talking. Everyone knows. And people aren't going to listen to you right now or care what you think, not with how you're living. And I upset him, he told me recently, all grown up, quite unbrethren and a middle-aged, sensible father of two, by my saying to him back then that he was thinking in that way. I meant that he was habitually, unthinkingly, only looking at the world and the people in it as he'd been trained to look at it. Because that was the only way he knew it was possible to look at it. He was shocked and confused back then, he said, at the idea that there was some way he was thinking that might have been created for him by others. To him at the time, he'd just been seeing what was, and I clearly saw other things, and had suspicions that what people at meeting were seeing and saying wasn't unbiased, spiritual, loving, wise, or anything like the whole story. And me going around with that kind of outlook in my head and in my eyes was very unsettling to brethren people already. I guess in Dave's head, he was thinking I was seeing things just as he did, but acting differently. In fact, I was seeing everything differently now, including how Dave saw things. I'd lived the life Dave was living already and was moving beyond it, not just breaking various rules inside that same worldview. Eventually, Dave started hanging out with my Pennsylvania friends and I going to movies himself and so on. I don't think it was all my fault either. I mean, there were girls, like Doug's sister. She and Dave were close there for a while. And there was another one that we both tried to, at different times, form a connection with. She was fantastic, but what she eventually needed was a non-brethren, atheist dude to help her pry herself free from her very brethren mom's sphere of influence. That's what I found the brethren women I've tried to connect with have ended up needing. A guy, living very local to wherever they live, without any strong feelings or thoughts about religion, certainly, operating as a kind of nondescript bucket of lukewarm water in which to immerse the bomb that had been implanted in each of our lives from birth. My own approach of getting the bomb out at church and carefully snipping this wire and that one as the service unfolded and eventually taking it outside and detonating it from a safe distance as evidence that it was in fact designed to explode did not make me anyone's first choice of brethren dating material. I was the farthest thing possible from off the radar. I believe future generations may look back at this time and place and recognize that traditional gender roles as we are living them right now have involved women having the complexity, angst, objections, grievances, neuroses, and drama, and quiet, calm, reassuring, and unopinionated men standing beside them with few thoughts of their own, perhaps a half-step behind them, carrying anything heavy, agreeing what colors things should be, and obediently slapping anyone who angers their women. Dealing with girls at brethren functions under the watchful eyes of the adults could be complicated, as Courier remembers. I mean, I went to a number of them, dozens and dozens yeah. of, the, of the events. I mean, I, I remember going to all sorts of doctor's houses and having fancy tennis courts and good food and pretty girls and all that stuff. And, um, and, and you know, I, I also remember as I got older, you know, it even got more weird. Because, you know, you weren't sure where the boundaries with the girls were. You weren't sure really where the boundaries, you know, how all that was supposed to work. And mm -hmm. and I know that it always felt like the meeting almost had prearranged marriages to me. It almost was I like, I, I remember like with various, like that 
you know, and I remember asking you, I would, I, I very specifically remember asking you, I would, oh, I'd be, I'd, I'd be interested in a girl thing. That girl's kind of pretty. And you would, you would always have the inside scoop on who was courting her or, yeah. oh, no, you can't go near her because so-and-so is interested in her or she's dating some asshole from Pennsylvania. I remember that being a big thing all the time. Like yeah. every time you're interested in a girl or, or something like that, some asshole from the States was interested in her and, oh, yeah. and, you, and you weren't allowed to talk to her or something. And I remember like, I, I do remember thinking that, but yeah, I remember going like, it's like it's so complicated about who's interested in who and confident mm-hmm. like yeah and, and that is that's where it started feeling very cult-like to me and, yeah. and it felt like it felt like all these pre-arranged marriages and so and so and i also very specifically be remembering going i'm never gonna none of these pretty girls are going to be interested in me because i'm not one of them yeah i very i remember specifically having that revolution going yeah i'm not going to get any more than any of these girls and you also had the inside scoop on the fact that some of the guys and even some of the girls were not uh, sticking by the brethren rules at all when it can't they had like the brethren life and the school life so some yes. of them some of them are screwing around and... i've always liked my cousin dave but one week there he was really annoying me i'd have visitors from pennsylvania up and we'd go to a venue where live music was playing maybe even me or my friends performing at it and dave would want to come now he didn't drink alcohol, so he wanted to be included, but he wasn't going to drink, and he kept complaining about a glass of Pepsi costing way more in our local pub than if he just bought it in a 2-4 of cans at the local dollar store. Chris and I can certainly both remember being the one who objected to things, too, essentially being the monkey wrench in the gears. Whenever anybody decides we're all going to do something and we finally agreed, there's this one person who always has the objection and wrecks it. Do you, have you ever is that like a familiar experience that'd be like i'm the monkey wrench really i i usually try and find all the things that could go wrong with something yeah that that's me i think i I can see that uh what do you think fuels that urge like what makes that the thing to do well when you're planning you like to come up with everything that i like to come up with everything that could go wrong so either you can hash it out and figure out yeah no that's stupid objection or or realize yeah that's really not a good idea i have this suspicion that whenever people present me with any hope for the future i can think of 15 horrible things that could happen if we try to do that and i'm really starting to suspect that most people don't work like that it sounds like you're another kind of person like that do you also think that maybe a lot of people it never occurs to them that their plans can go wrong so they just do it and just be blindsided you mean or don't you think a lot of people are willing to be blindsided that they they seem to make plans and just try them without really hesitating and and maybe you're more like me but you can imagine all these things that could go wrong and and i don't think everyone does that if they don't do that that's just very strange to me yeah because i'm the same i can't help it i i immediately (laughs) picture everything going wrong um almost done i probably overthink and uh just be like no that's a stupid idea and no not a good idea Chris's wife, Sherry, agrees about him being a bit of a party pooper at times, as we were all raised to be. Most recently, I felt it when I would get excited about something and Chris would poo-poo it for one reason or another. Or, you know, I thought, oh, this would be fun. And he was just like, I don't know. I don't remember. The actual question is an older person. This is just your husband. but (laughs) I know. I guess that counts. I'm trying to think back. Yeah, he is technically older than me. My cousin Dave would come along with the pack of us and say he'd forgotten his wallet, so we had to buy Dave a Pepsi or whatever. And it also became clear that if any of us said or did anything interesting at all, 
Dave's mother would certainly hear of it and tell everyone in the local and not-so-local Brethren Assemblies first chance she got. When Dave hung out with us around that time Doug and some vetters and acquaintances came up here to see Meatloaf play in Hull, Quebec, and Doug got very drunk at Curry's house and randomly ran into a group of brethren young people on the Rideau Canal, Ottawa's five-mile-long skating rink, the vetters were surprised to find that suddenly all the brethren folk on the East Coast and Central area of North America seemed to know all about it, and so the vetters assumed that I'd been going around gossiping like a typical brethren guy. In fact, I'd been busy denying the wilder of the untrue rumors and trying to run damage control. Hard to do when Doug had run into actual brethren folks while he was drunk and had to quickly be led muzzily away lest he throw up on Beth Ann Dodds's skates. Informing to the brethren was what we were all raised to do. Dave grew out of this kind of thing pretty fast, but one evening, right in the middle of that, thinking of Alice's restaurant, I recorded myself drawing... Here's a song about a subject that raises my dander some. It's a song about, and then instead of saying Dave Anderson, which kind of almost rhymed, I said, it's a song about dingoes, which also started with D. Because like I said, I like Dave. Dingoes represented annoying people in my life in this song. And then I wrote three mini-stories, not about Dave at all, but about going to the doctor, suffering a mysterious dingo bite on the hindquarters, about a fictitious street-preaching teen bothering people coming out of the movie theater, claiming the film was filled with filth and violence and nudity, and then about being let go by an annoying lady boss I really didn't like at the time, due, in the song, to her suspicions I might have been, or appeared to be, or was rumored to almost certainly be, a dingo myself. Instead of the chorus going, You can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant. It went, Dingoes never pay for nothing. Forget their wallets if you take them uptown. Dingoes always tell their mama so they're not much fun to hang around. If you know what I mean. That bit of the song was the one that was definitely about Dave at that point in our lives. And like I said, it sure wasn't just my cousin Dave who was a double agent for the Lord's Things. This was a song about hanging out with any brethren young person. The done thing was to ensure that if anything was going to be done, then everything that got done was done in secret. Get a 2-4 of Molson Dry or a Mickey of Crown Royal and get puking drunk on the beach or behind the barn with a couple of friends if you wanted to, secretly, knowing it was apparently very fun to do and very wrong of you to do it and doing it anyway, and then tattling on anyone else that you heard did anything of that kind. That's not what we did, my Pennsylvania friends and I. We just did what we did. In theory, most of us were into moderation. As far as we were concerned, if there was anything wrong with what we wanted to do, we wouldn't do it. And if there was nothing wrong with it, we weren't going to play along with the brethren fiction that something was wrong with it. Most of the others were willing to be wrong so long as they got to enjoy the supposedly wrong thing, but not us. We wanted to have it all. Hard to believe it. But in an age before the internet, people my age or slightly younger would want to get a ride to a young people's youth event or Bible conference or other brethren thing, hoping I'd play loud music in my car. The sort of music that wasn't allowed them specifically. If I played Credence or The Police or something by Christian artists like Striper or U2 or King's X, 
They would look at me and say, no, you know what I mean. They meant Metallica or Guns N' Roses or something like that. Aerosmith, ACDC maybe, Two Live Crew, Snoop Dogg, Ice-T, something bad. Something they didn't dare listen to at home or have their parents find in their tape collection. I found it ironic back then that a brethren guy in our sort of culty brethren group had his dad confiscate his Blue Oyster cult tape because of the word cult in the title, despite all of the cowbell in Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Nothing culty in that parental intervention in the lives of their adult children, I guess. Similarly, any cassettes with beautiful women or monsters or horror movie imagery on them would be pitched by parents, or even ones with cover art that depicted guitars or fonts that were especially pointy. To this day, if you want to do cover art for a book and make it look Christian, have a slender human figure, arms raised high, silhouetted against a sunset being reflected in water. If you want to do cover art for an album, movie, video game, or book to concern Christian parents, do a black background, flames and a pointy guitar and gothic lettering, and maybe dice or a playing card, a snake or a skull, or a girl who definitely does not sing on this album. Biker tattoo stuff. But the young brethren kids would ride in our cars to brethren events and see if we'd play some loud, fun music, and then go get brethren points and protect their own brethren status by gossiping about how offended they were by the terrible cassette tapes we had in our cars. My cousin Dave installed an especially large subwoofer in his souped-up Acura purely to play Brian Adams' So Far So Good or things like Hathaway's Baby Don't Hurt Me, Ace of Bases' All That She Wants, and Roxette's Joyride, especially loud. For Dave, speeding around hairpin turns on country roads enveloped in that wall of sound felt like freedom. From everything. So long as his mom didn't put a stop to it. My brethren underground friends, the Vetters in Pennsylvania, ended up having a constant parade of young brethren people between the ages of 15 and 50, continually dropping by to see what was going on at their house, often looking to witness pipes or cigars being smoked, alcohol being drank, visiting girls, worldly music, television and VHS tapes, and worst of all, a whole lot of free, honest talking and thinking about God and the Bible and so on. It was like they were hoping to be shocked, would thoroughly enjoy the thrill of whatever they could find there in what was essentially a typical American house with all that unto it pertained, lacking the usual brethren sanitization, while also not being a worldly person's forbidden unbelieving house quite. Then, of course, these visiting people would repent of it afterward once the fun was all over and go gossip about it to all the people looking for dirt on the Vetter family and then come back over when they got bored enough and do it all over again. When you, whatever it is, you do something that you're not necessarily supposed to do in the meeting, but not a big thing, like going to the movies, or maybe you were smoking a pipe or drinking a beer, something small. Um, And there were those, you know, other adolescents or young 20s who wanted to be involved, who wanted to hang out. 
and there was the question of, do you include them or not? Do you have to worry about them tattletaling? Will they tattletale? Then what do you do? Yeah, they will tattletale. And then what do you do? That's... <laughs> I'm assuming that happened to you a few times. Yeah. If they were forbidden going to worldly people's homes, this was a brethren person's house, so long as the vetters weren't unbrethren for life or anything, and they weren't, yet... In his late 20s, Michael Vetter was visiting a family in Chicago for whom he is currently doing some paintings of their infants. Even before I was trying to date Bethany, I would go out to Chicago and I would stay with the drowned. By the way, those baby paintings are for one of the drowned kids, Peter, who actually right. was the one who who was went to my room and dug through my bag, you know, and pulled out uh, some cigars that I had hidden in one of the pockets there and uh, went and told his mom that, you know, I, I had cigars and uh, the parents came and accosted me with it. And they're like, well, I mean, honest, technically you know, our, our kids shouldn't have been rooting through your bag, but they found these cigars. And I was like, well, yeah, I, you know, I, and I, so I, I presented it like I wasn't guilty. I was like, yeah, I, I, I smoke and I enjoy it and I thank God for it. And they're like, oh. Even non-brethren raised Troy remembers how when cooler kids got into trouble for smoking pot and staying out late, some of us had very different run-ins with authority. In most cases, most people's parents weren't introducing them to Dungeons and Dragons or <laughs> or Star Wars. Like that was something you did on your own, and your parents didn't get it. Yeah, I thought it was dumb. Um, it's funny. My old man got introduced to it through one of my uncles, uh, my, my my one of my mother's brothers. And then when I got to a certain age, my uncle happened to be at my grandparents' place, and he took me through. Um, the Middle Earth role playing game, which is called MERP at the time, and this oh, yeah. is in the, in the late eighties, probably. Ice. And uh, yeah, and they um, so he took me through this adventure where he did it, and we made a character, and I was like, "What is this amazing thing?" And eventually, I would come to learn Dungeons and Dragons, but I mean, it was the Satanic Panic. MERPs is way complicated compared to D and D. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it is a much more complicated game. I eventually borrowed the books from it just so because when I was into role playing, and I was like, "Holy cow!" Like this taking it up to the notch like mm -hmm. and the thing is it's not even the most complicated one because there was one above it uh role master right and that was way more complicated but yeah it was funny that um it's it's funny that yeah my parents never directly but they didn't have a problem with it but i did have run into like cultural and societal problems because of the satanic panic and the association of it like mm -hmm. you know it kind of had to be hidden yeah when we wanted to buy it from the one store that had it um, it was always kept at the back and the conundrum to it was, is that that place was where all the old pearl clutching ladies would buy their like, you know, uh, dollhouse stuff and crafts. This wasn't Shadowfax, was it? No, this is, so Shadowfax was there, but before that was Hobbytown. Mm -hmm. Challenge your imagination to come alive and to battle with the creatures of Dungeons and Dragons. Grapple against the forces of evil as a Marvel comic superhero. Hunt adventure and glory as Indiana Jones. The all-new role-playing games of TSR and Dungeons and Dragons. Unleash the power of your imagination. This is surprising to everybody, but I'm older than you are. Uh, I'm just the right age that that uh, I was 14 when probably like basic red box basic Dungeons and Dragons came out. I'm the prime age for Dungeons and Dragons, and my parents, despite being incredibly fundamentalist, trusted me when I told them that it was just books and stories. 
And as far as they were concerned, a lot of my books had dragons on them and dungeons and people with swords. So many of my books had people with swords on them. So when they saw me with these other books, they didn't like dice because dice was gambling. But they, they, they didn't understand how it could be a book but also a game. But they, they literally trusted me. And if people said, oh, that's satanic, they were like, no, it's perfectly ordinary. And they believed me. And when I played it, it wasn't satanic. I don't know how you played D&D, but... There, I wasn't summoning demons and, and all that stuff. Yeah, no, I never understood the logic. So um, in my public school, I got in trouble and we got a, uh, an in-school suspension for playing Marvel superheroes role-playing. Wallop and web snappers. See, that's crazy. And they actually got the parents to come in and have a discussion with the teacher, with the principal. Parents took it seriously? Or? Well, the parents took it seriously in offense because they were like, what is wrong with you people? Okay. Like, they were annoyed, A, that their kid's getting in trouble, and they were extremely annoyed that the assistant principal of the school would drag them in to talk about a game where they rolled some dice and, and wrote things, and it's about Spider-Man. Yeah. And to them, it was like a breakdown. Like, is, is this what our taxes pay for? Is yeah. for you to get our children in trouble for not doing anything wrong? Like... For doing simple math. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's like, wow, they were doing the thing you try to teach them, and you got them in trouble for it. Thanks a lot. Shut up. Like it was. What, a, what do you think was going on in their heads? Did they genuinely believe that it was dangerous? I, I mean, I think a lot of it was blown out of proportion. I mean, I had a more direct... Um, I went to a convention in Ottawa, uh, like in the early 90s, and it was the only time I ever really had a brush with the the mothers against Dungeons and Dragons because they were there protesting it. Well, they can't say mad because that's mothers against drunk driving. They need their own acronym. Well, they got in trouble for it, I think. And that's kind of between the end of that and then Mm -hmm. mothers against drunk driving coming down on them. Like, because at the time they kind of worked together in a sense that they were a slightly religious organization and they were trying to stop the demonization of their children. Mm -hmm. So I think in some ways they kind of were, Synergistic. That's and, how you but, summon demons, isn't it? You roll, I should have asked the satanic guy, but you roll yeah. dice, don't you? And yep, yep. Draw, draw pictures of knights in your notebook. Yeah, it made no sense. But they handed us the they. Um, I think that they had an agreement with the convention runners that they were allowed to be there at the check in, mm-hmm. and they were allowed to hand. They were handing out this printout that would tell you what their sort of memorandum and their mission statement and why what you're doing is bad, and you know, think about. We'd been trained about all this stuff. The biblical training we'd been given was that offending the tender consciences of brethren people was a sin. Disobedience to the clear instruction of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the saints at Corinth. If we wanted to have a beer with our suicide hot wings on the patio of Applebee's or Kelsey's or Moxie's or any establishment ending in apostrophe S, that was bad, really bad, a very serious thing, because... Even if we were somehow magically able to drink one whole Coors Light without developing lifelong alcoholism, some young person might see us who couldn't. What's that? This, my friend, is a pint. It comes in pints? Oh, I can get you one. You've got a whole half already! And they might obviously be led to follow our example and then become alcoholics or die in an alcohol-induced car wreck, the Lord speaking, as he'd now been forced by them so to do and their death would be the fault of our lack of consideration for their spiritual health. Or worse still, they might get seriously into partying and stop coming to meeting regularly. 
and we deceivers, we false brethren crept in privily unawares, would have led the children of the gathered saints astray into paths of wickedness. What could be more wicked? Actually, the false brethren crept in privily unawares the apostle speaks of in the Bible were looking to spy out the liberty we have in Christ to place us again under bondage. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Bondage to a life defined by rules Christ died to free us from, like touch not, taste not, handle not, and so on. Not what you're thinking of. Much more importantly, even than brethren young people being led astray by our enjoying and entertaining ourselves, regular bog-standard, run-of-the-mill worldly people might see us with a beer in our hand, not be able to then, of course, recognize us as true blood-bought Christians given our worldly person disguise, and then would certainly, lacking our clear testimony for Christ, end up in hell for a lost eternity. And it would be our fault. We were here to fly the faith flag, to represent, to not do all the things for God. If we were ashamed of Jesus, then Jesus was ashamed of us. The Bible said that somewhere, kind of. As to why we couldn't really have fun, we were all pointed to a specific Bible verse in 1 Corinthians. The apostle says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth lest I make my brother to offend. So clearly, they argued, if even something like eating meat made your brethren, brother, or sister claim to feel offended feelings of offendedness, then the direction of Paul the Apostle was to choose the vegetarian option. Not that our folks would have dreamed of giving up actual literal meat for any reason. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, we came down so hard on the other six deadly sins that we held very tightly indeed at church functions especially to our gluttony. But it was the principle of the thing. Stuff like televisions, music, playing cards, alcohol, and joy. And in a spirit that is certainly alive and well in the secular world today, there was the unthinking assumption that the very best people were ones who were the most quickly and deeply offended by the largest number of little things. You signaled membership in the in-group by your capacity to be offended by things. Now, naturally, we knew all this meat business was misapplying that verse in Corinthians. We knew a bait-and-switch was going on. We knew that Corinth was a city with a thriving marketplace of pantheistic religions. We knew that the Christians at Corinth were being asked to clarify if they were mainly followers of Venus or Juno or Diana or whomever. Family, social connections, income bracket, and political affiliation might all come with connections to various Greco-Roman gods in a way that would feel quite familiar to brethren, Jehovah's Witness, Jewish, Muslim, or Buddhist folk asked to play secret Santa at their job for the month of December. As Marty and Brent remind us in the single Bema podcast devoted to 1 Corinthians, different professions were associated with different gods, too as in smiths, all being connected with Vulcan, the Roman god of the forge, and farmers, millers, and bakers with Ceres, the goddess of the harvest, as in cereal. So there's this part in 1 Corinthians about the new Christians in Corinth buying discount meat in the city markets that may or may not have been possibly part of a pagan worship service or celebration the day before. 
Paul's argument is that Venus isn't real, so there's no bad venereal juju spiritually or magically really infecting the beef they'd used in the Venus-worshipping celebrations, so there was no harm in Christians buying and eating it. Paul's advice is to buy and eat the discount meat with a good conscience, not asking too many questions about whether the cow in question had been raised free-range or grain-fed or hormone-injected or mercury-free or Diana-free or indeed slaughtered on an altar to Jupiter that morning. And if you couldn't do that and feel okay about it, then not to buy and eat it. There's one proviso, which is about keeping the peace in the assemblies. Some new Christians might be struggling to give up their former identities as followers of Mars or Mercury or whomever, and so if you, in their presence, perhaps having invited them over for dinner, ate Harris ham, Diana dogs, or Bacchus burgers, this might cause them not only to feel offended, but to actually offend, to be guilty of committing an offense, to reminisce about their bacchanalian feasts or aphroditic orgiastic orgies and slide right back into their recently abandoned Greek or Roman pagan faith traditions. In this case, Paul wouldn't want to cause his brother to offend by eating meat offered to idols in front of him. So he wouldn't do that to them. It might cause them to fall off the faith wagon. We get this. It's not magic or even uniquely Christian. Most of us avoid drinking alcohol in the presence of people we know have real struggles with alcoholism, unless they tell us it's fine for us to do so and we believe them. How this verse was weaponized for controlling us brethren 20-somethings, though, was that we were told, as I was at my exit meeting with the three leading brothers of our assembly, that teenagers, even hearing a rumor that I might drink a beer on occasion, might well lead them astray into alcoholism, and so I was disobeying the apostles' instruction by having such Guinness-related gossip associated with my name, hurting the kids, potentially. And furthermore, if anything we did or said caused those with the strongest, most sensitive and delicate consciences, the power people among us, to be able to claim to have felt offended quite often at us not simply doing everything they expected exactly the way they expected we would, then we were again living in clear disobedience to the apostles' instruction not to offend brethren people by being in any way unbrethren. It made us all have to live under a crushing tyranny of trembling, delicately ironclad sensibilities and empathocracy, with an offendedness Olympics held each and every day. What happens if you say that and someone gets offended? Well, they can be offended. <laughs> What's wrong with being offended? When did sticks and stones may break my bones stop being relevant? Isn't that what you teach children, for God's sake? That's what you teach toddlers. He called me an idiot. Don't worry about him. He's a dick. <laughs> now you have adults going, I was offended. I was offended and I have rights. <laughs> well, so what? Be offended. Nothing happens. <laughs> You're an adult. Grow up. Deal with it. I was offended. I don't care. Nothing happens when you're offended. There's nothing... I, I went to the comedy show and, and the comedian said something about the Lord and, and I was offended. And when I woke up in the morning, I had leprosy. <laughs> nothing happens. I want to live in democracy, but I never want to be offended again. <laughs> well, you're an idiot. My books have spoken of the uselessness of smoke detectors that are going off detecting non-existent smoke and fire alike 
and about using the princess and the princess and the pea story as the key role model for our Christian soldiers, wearing the whole armor of God and somehow ending up with the thinnest skin of all as to what might offend us. Makes me wonder how much of Jesus' time was spent gasping in shock and offense at bad words and behavior going on in Judea, his face crinkled up like he'd smelled something bad, and him needing to walk out of rooms in umbrage and generally boycott things to stand up and speak out against them. Evan, being an economist, tends to see things as having more than just one cause. I think that we know some stories of people challenging the status quo. We learn them in school, whether it's like a civil rights thing or sort of a change in the scientific field, whatever. Somebody who challenges the status quo and ends up famous and, and beloved and whatever. Martin Luther Martin, nailing the things to the church door, was making a big point, was objecting. Jesus did it all the time. And I guess this is like the small potatoes. For, I, I use the princess and the pea thing. It's like, well, you guys can all sleep on the mattresses, but I'm a princess. And so there's a pea and it bruises my sensitive, you know, my, my delicate sensibilities cannot withstand watching this episode of Friends because this is the one in which Ross is problematic. And I am, am kind of interested in people's theory well, just general comments, but also the theory as to what's really going on there. I, I think it's probably like three or four different things. I think one of them is this idea that, that tearing people down could somehow boost you up. I do not think that's based in any facts or anything. I just think that that's what they think. Yeah. I think another one is this idea of we've thought that challenging the status quo, we hold it up on a pedestal. We think that that's a good thing. But simply objecting to the mainstream doesn't make you particularly nuanced or, or, or sophisticated in any way. Uh, I think that people who can understand the mainstream for what it is, like it's mainstream, that doesn't mean it's great. It means it's mainstream and appreciate it for what it is. Why is it popular? I, I think that's worth learning and it's worth challenging if you think that you can sort of add something to the discussion, but going around and telling your friends, well, you can't watch friends anymore. You can't watch Seinfeld or, or you can't listen to this music or because it's problematic and whatever. Or, or I you, think you that, can, but then I'm, I'm uncomfortable with you now. I feel <laughs> superior to you. And, and of course it reminds me of the church background. It reminds me of the satanic panic surrounding both rock and roll and Dungeons and Dragons and horror movies, right. all three of those things in the eighties. It's, it's suspicious. They look for whatever is the thing that everyone likes. And mm -hmm. there's that person protesting nowadays with hashtags, basically saying like everyone enjoys it, but not me mm -hmm. because, and Thomas Sowell talks about incentives as being a central topic. I mean, obviously they feel good when they do it. Why they feel good is what I don't, like, I don't know where that idea originates. And it's yeah. probably different. I mean, it's definitely different among everybody, but what the common trends there are. And again, I think it's that idea that, that some people are, mistake <laughs> are mistaking cynicism for wisdom, I think. I think that's part of it. I also think that there's, if you're finding things over and over again, that if it's really important to them to be different than the crowd, that's not based in something sophisticated. Like I just, I will always want to be an outsider yeah. because you know, what, what's also, that serving? I ran the idea by Cheryl in church culture, the young and the joyful and the female seem to draw more negative responses than anything else. Women always got it worse. Young people always got it worse and joyful people who are having a blast seem to have it worse. So I have this theory that it's actually the joy itself and the youth that makes those specific people object. There's a whole song or topic 
about basically contrarians, uh, the people who, um, when everybody agrees upon something, suddenly, no, and they, they have an objection. Um, they're just there to be a bump in the road. Um, why do people behave that way? How do you deal with that? It could be multiple reasons. One, they've taken on the false image that they're a contrarian. Two, who they truly are is contrary to what's being spoken. And so they're trying to assert who they truly are in the situation. Um, three, they just, they like the attention. Maybe they're Leos, <laughs> you know, and they like to be the center of attention. So, so it's, um, and sometimes they're doing a good thing and sometimes they're not. So just that behavior itself, mm-hmm. being a contrarian isn't bad. It's context. I'm often accused of it because, well, especially in religious circles, you're probably very familiar with these people that ask what sounds like a question and they're really just checking for agreement and allegiance. So they say, you know, this, isn't that a wonderful idea, isn't it? And you're, meanwhile, you're not buying it. And so that really the only answer, like, isn't that a wonderful idea? No. Like, aren't you delighted to know that something that you don't believe in? You're like, no, I'm not delighted because I don't think that uh, I find myself in that position. Melody weighs in. I can't think of an actual example, but that just sounds so familiar. Like, I feel like I know that person who... Why would they do it? Control. So it's control? Like, you... you I think so. You're watching a movie and you say, oh, this is problematic. Or or someone says that there's this thing on Friends that Ross did on the one that, and they're like, oh, I can't watch Friends. It's it's problematic. Like, that's the same in churches and without. There's always that person. Yes. Yes. So yeah. What, what it's motivates well, them? okay. So if you're in the friends example, I think, I mean, that just because that's more relatable now, it's more, I, I do hear things like that. That's more, I don't know. Isn't that just virtue signaling? Like I have this level of wokeness that you don't have, and I'm not speaking badly about wokeness. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in, but there is an unwillingness to consider any context mm-hmm. and to, you know, give grace for what somebody's trying to do, even if they don't quite get there. Are you suggesting to be inclusive and tolerant? Why, yes, I may be. I, I don't think I'm quite woke enough to use the word woke. I'm a perfect example of that in my Christian circles, I was the most leftist person in those circles. And that with what's happened politically and in schools, schools are a bit nuts right now. And so all of a sudden, because I'm not quite as left now, I'm like the most right person in the room that's an adult. Usually the, the ones that are more right just don't even talk. And uh, the mm. kids, the kids we, we live in a place where I think someone famously said that we talk liberal and vote conservative. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no liberal would ever win an election around. Like, there's no way they would ever win an election around here. But people are surprisingly conservative. And in fact, sometimes I'm teaching kids and I'm aware that they are genuinely racist in the not knowing better racist in the, in the talking, the way their grandpa and their dad talks. And so they don't know and it's normal and they don't necessarily mean any harm, but they definitely are acting in a way that's not appropriate to their future life. And when they go get their jobs and stuff and I I tell them like, you're not always going to work for your dad. So probably, so there's, you can't say that word and you can't say that. And one of them was saying something about racist people. And I was looking at him and thinking like, who do you mean? So I said like, what do you mean when you say racist people? He said, well, yeah. people that actually say it, like, I mean, it's true, but they say it. So it's re- true, but, but they say it. 
Yes. And so he, he viewed himself as he would be aware that he's very conservative and ignorant and backwoods in, in every sense of that word. So he'd be probably fairly used to and unsurprised if you said he was racist. But there's some people that are beyond the pale to him. They are racist. And that's because they talk racist. Huh. And you're not supposed to say it. So he's concerned about projecting the image yeah. And it's probably out of kindness that he's thinking, well, not everybody will think this is funny or, or will think it's okay. So I'm not going to do that. Um, there's probably a certain amount of getting along with people in, in his attitude. But I mean, it's hard with kids because there are racists on the internet looking at genuine stats and making their points with them. And, you know, yeah. there's stats yep. that help you be racist. And yep. so with, with kids, and everybody's got an anecdote. Yes. And how do you teach them? And you know, we don't have too many anecdotes up here in the woods. And so uh, we, all of us know people of color and there's always not very many of them. And it's always just local folks. Like they, they may be of color, but they're from here. And so culturally speaking, there, there's no difference. and There's no great need to try and understand someone who's different because they're not very different. Yeah. Um, you went to kindergarten <laughs> with them. They were in all of your classes. And so that's the kind of environment that we have here. And I, I don't pretend to understand my sister as an elementary school teacher right in the middle of Canada's capital. And although it's a very small city, she'll be in a situation where all of her students are immigrants and they're from countries that don't get along. And that's oh, nothing that I understand. That's, that's interesting. She generally works where she's the only white person in the room where the white people are definitely the minority in most of her job. Um, hmm. Because when people immigrate, immigrate to a country, often it's going to be the capital of the country or, or something like that. And and that's not my experience. Nobody emigrates to a town of 10,000 people in the woods in Ontario. Like that doesn't happen. So (laughs) of course we have people of color and they have really interesting stories and backgrounds and stuff. And, but we know them, they're they're people, they're us. We grew up with them. Um, But yeah, so the, the whole, like this, this discussion of you, you said virtue signaling and woke. And I think I'm not quite woke enough to use either of those words because it will just make people dismiss me. But you can probably wield those words with impunity. But yeah, basically, when I hear somebody, I, I say they're two princess and the, and the pea to get a good sleep on certain mattresses, that mm. they're kind of showing that they're more easily offended than you are. And that makes them more sensitive. And sensitive is a good thing. And I think yeah. sensitive is a good yeah. thing, but I think that we should start teaching our kids about being tough again. I think that we really need to, and maybe COVID will give mixed signals on that. Uh, it's definitely given them hardship, but we're also sort of acting like if anyone dies, then it's inexcusable and it's your fault. One of the things I told my kids is I said, when I was a kid, we were taught that girls could cry and boys had to be tough. And the world has changed. Now the girls have to be tough too. And I don't mean that they can't cry. They'll take care of that themselves. Girls cry. It's like a um, (laughs) self-initiating activity in teenage girls. I spoke about this with Ruth too. Like what are these people up to that they find a way to make everything not okay? Well, you notice it's a status thing, right? The people who are allowed, they are permitted. They're even encouraged to get offended those are the ones with power. I think it's another power trip. Okay. Sounds sensible. Uh, I think that it's people trying to have control. I think it's people who are in a place where they do have some measure of influence. Yeah, because I mean, none of this is 
is new. We had people in the 60s who were complaining about what was on TV and movies. Um, We had in the 80s, there was political correctness. And in in Britain, there was Mary Whitehouse, uh, who was talking about all these things that people shouldn't be allowed to watch or shouldn't be allowed to hear. It's all bad. And and they're almost universal in being, as you say, usually they were white women who were wealthy, three W's. White, white white women who are wealthy, arguing that being a woman puts them in a position of privilege, I'm not sure works, but they're definitely white women with wealth. And in the 80s, they made no attempt to check in to see if there's actually anything wrong with the thing. They would just say that it was bad in some way, a comic book or a, a movie Harry or a TV Potter. show. Yeah. And, and, and Harry Potter's later. And right. what's weird now is that the three W people are jumping on Harry Potter if they have a problem with J.K. Rowling's politics. We started by saying that there wasn't such thing as cancel culture. And then we started saying that there was, but it was almost never happening. And then we said that it was happening all the time, but all the people it was happening to deserved it. And then now we're saying that it's a thing and it's happening all the time. And many of the people it's happening to deserve it at least somewhat. And then now we're kind of arguing that, well, it's not happening to the good people. And to me, it's all the same thing. It's people, Mm -hmm. white women with wealth normally, saying there's something that people are finding joy in. Let's ruin it. Yeah. What do you think that's about? Well, you said it's about power. and That's how I look at it. But what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that you need something that signals there's the regular people. They're just Mm -hmm. regular. And and I think it's neo-Victorianism. It's neo-Victorian Protestantism. So it's a way of saying that I'm not like that that person. Like that person is a normal person. I'm a decent, upstanding, church-going, politically correct, moral majority, woke, progressive, Democrat, whatever it is. I am humanity plus. I'm on a special level. Please don't mistake me for the regular folks because they don't know I, I'm aware I'm enlightened. I'm aware I'm awake. I'm, woke. I'm, I'm yeah. It's all the same. Like saying woke is an insult, but if you go back, there's very similar uh, being enlightened or, or being a decent mm-hmm. American citizen or mm-hmm. uh, a church going person or a decent citizen. Mm-hmm. There's all these terms that basically say there's regular folks and I'm trying for something a little bit better. And I, there's nothing that would offend me more than if you were to mistake me for a regular person. Virtue signaling? Well, yeah, I avoid using words like virtue signaling and woke and even progressive and Democrat because people will just say, oh, it's a tribal thing. So you're signaling that you are a white supremacist, um, radical. Yeah, and I I, I really don't. Rather than having a discourse. And and I am not happy enough with the right to love them any better than the left. I, I don't love anybody okay. that way politically. I'm a middle of the road person. So Being a lot of people of are disenfranchised. Some people say centrist and then people say that's, you can't be in the center. And other, other people say like they're disenfranchised progressives that they would have been mm-hmm. progressive or left, but then their people went farther than they wanted to go or did, did things in a stupid way. That, oh. that is what I think. And so I don't want to yeah. identify with a tribe and I, I could be just viewing everything through church-colored glasses, but to me, it is the same. Mary Whitehouse, with her complaining about movies in the '80s, and mm. people complaining—you know, calling various feminist turfs because they're trans-exclusionary—really um, a big deal right now on the internet. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I'm not 
I'm not weighing in and taking a side. I'm just saying this whole, this whole thing, the, the, the one that actually gives me flashbacks to my childhood mm. are those very dour white women with wealth who are terrified in a very Victorian Puritan way, mm-hmm. lest somebody be enjoying something that's mm-hmm. not okay. That's just not okay. And, right. and the most right. obvious ones are, are things like the show Friends that never pretended to be a, a work of art or an incredibly modern or leftist thing. It was just a comedy show. Mm-hmm. People are watching Friends now and pretty much making sure everyone knows how shocked they are. Oh, as a way to, to show off. I'm sure that, that that's not how they experience it. But when you're listening right. to them, it's like they're saying, like, I am not someone who can watch that and feel okay. Sure. I'm sure. enlightened. I've, I've woken up. I'm awake now. Sure. To, I'm, I've been, my awareness has been raised. And consciousness has been raised. That is so 60s. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the enlightenment. And yeah, right. uh, the enlightenment and the French Revolution, whenever people want to say, I'm part of the new good thing. They use images of light and dark or, or awake and asleep. And so the right are extremely guilty of saying, when are you going to wake up, sheeple? Well, once again, wake, woke. They're going to call people woke and ask when they're going to wake up. You're both using exactly the same language, the same images. And you're both Mm -hmm. wanting to say, I'm somebody who knows. Don't mistake me for those sheeple. Don't mistake me for those wokies. Don't mistake me for alt-right don't mistake me for any of these things i am someone who pays attention i've got my nose to the grindstone on my ear to the ground and my finger on the pulse of the nation i know what's going on and i think that one of the major things the internet has done is to bombard us with so much carefully tailored to our own emotional responses information that none of us has any idea what's going on yeah so someone says, like, what's your opinion on Afghanistan? Well, a bunch of people who, I don't know, are hockey coaches and pizza chefs and stuff are going to leap out and tell you exactly Afghanistan. And wow. I would like to think that I'm intellectually humble enough to say I cannot pretend to understand all the ins and outs of Afghanistan, That's nor do I know what everyone. went wrong or what should happen. Mm-hmm. So I've been saying I don't understand it. I'm just sad. As in my heart goes out to the women and children who are suffering. My heart goes out to anyone who is suffering because of what happened. My heart goes out to the servicemen and women, but I don't understand foreign policy. I don't understand enough of what, of what is happening. It's bitterness. I think, I mean, it, it has to be bitterness on some level. I think a lot of the times that comes from envy. That's been my experience. I would say is, is somebody sees somebody else thriving or enjoying something or whatever, and they don't have that. And they don't have the tool, I guess, to go and try to find something that they like in that same way. They can sort of feel affirmed uh, with this idea that if everybody else is everybody else is making these grand mistakes and you're sort of the keeper of good living. And so what you're going to do is tear everybody else down. That might make you feel a little bit better about yourself. I don't think it works, but that's my impression of why they're, they're doing that. Right. I don't know if I'm wrong in connecting the the people who problematize things for political or social justice reasons, but people who problematize them for church reasons and religious superstition and people who can enjoy it because it's not because everyone likes it and they're too cool to like it. In my mind, there's a connection between those things. Yeah, I can definitely see it. The connection between those things is a tribalism argument, right? It's like 
you're separating yourself from a crowd and you need some sort of an enemy. I think that the modern Christian spends a lot of time trying to find reasons why he or she is persecuted because we have, we read all the time about all this persecution that the Christians went through and how they overcame it, the early Christians. And that's fine. Um, But I think that the state to which Christianity is persecuted in North America has been overstated. I think that that might be part of it, that people continue to want in, in a church atmosphere, they continue to want to have these reasons for redemption and overcoming and sacrifice. And, 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 and that's all fine. I just, I think we need to be real that we are not being persecuted in the same way that the early Christians were not at risk of death. Most of the time in, in Canada and the United States of dying because we're Christians. Given the many, many hours each week I spent growing up sitting there helplessly while people confidently preached at us, trying to make us take some pretty random, poorly thought-out stuff terribly seriously and make us fear, judge, reject, disdain, and distrust more and more people, places, and things, I grew up to be a man with absolutely zero patience with people preaching and ranting at me, especially about boycotting things and raising awareness and standing up and speaking out against much of human daily reality with a nuance-free, pinhole-wide, ever-angry worldview and all without me getting to talk to, be offended or else, essentially. So this song was one of those ones that made people laugh back in the day, but that I soon forgot about. I decided to toss it into the mix on this album and podcast and found I wanted to update it to reflect what kinds of sermons I am most frequently subjected to at the time of recording. So I did that. I wanted it clear that I don't care what dark corner of the political spectrum you claim to lurk in. If you preach at this, brethren lad, I am going to resent it. I was in For just under 30 years, most of it in solitary confinement, I've done my time as to sitting through sermons. I don't deserve more of it. A central theme of this podcast, and in fact the Bible itself, has been working together, forming and maintaining connections with other people. The older translations of the Bible into English use the word love, as Shakespeare did, with people saying they loved each other if they were familiar with and fond of each other and able and willing to work together easily on, well, anything really, like a pie or a song or a barn. And Christians were told that the reputation they would have that would impress, attract, and win over unbelievers to their faith was not a reputation for abstinence or Bible knowledge or something like that, but that they would be recognized by their love one for the other, for their loyalty, their unity, the strength of their connections. Whoops! If there's anything Christians have a reputation for, besides hating gay people and teenagers who've gotten abortions, it's splintering into an absolutely embarrassingly large number of entirely independent squabbling church groups which mean absolutely nothing much one to the other and which would likely fail to so much as agree what kind of pizza to order and from where. Bible words like love, fellowship, communion, and so on were mainly used among the brethren in what my online boss Corey the Tolkien Professor Olson calls a purely vertical way either God loving down to us 
us loving back up to God, and then us loving down to children, employees, and the needy. That part is pretty easy. The part we seem to most consistently undervalue and or mess up is loving, working with, working things out with, coming to agreements with, sorting things out with, our peers, horizontally, so to speak, loving across. And at most, we included in our set of peers we were trying to work with and get along with, those members of our own Christian group who we felt were living appropriately in accordance with Scripture and whose lives we felt made sense to us and nobody else. We drew away from and pushed away most others, which left precious few people we maintained healthy connections with. My dad sure upset folks at meeting by trying to make things there make sense to him, by objecting to insincerity, nepotism, favoritism, phoniness, and inconsistencies, and they sure smashed him underfoot and kept him down there. And from that point on, his advice to me was to focus exclusively on my vertical connection to God when at meeting. Going to meeting five times a week was, obviously, absolute hell for socially anxious people like my dad and I, and his only way of coping was to pretend there were no other people in the room, just him and his God. He could no longer show his love for his brethren downward by trying to teach or edify them. He just couldn't deal with his brothers and sisters and brethrenness, and they couldn't and wouldn't even try to deal with him either. They pretended he wasn't there Sunday morning, and he did the same right back. There was no grace there, no forgiveness, no mercy either. Dad wasn't imagining they were against him and keeping him down and gossiping about him. That was a reality, demonstrably. Eventually, in his early senior citizenship, when his aging peers were busy kicking out and demanding formal ostracization of yet another round of the few remaining brethren among them over who knows what incoherent nonsense, all in the name of obeying the Bible and serving God, my dad objected to that. He thought there was too much division, that thing the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians to forbid. Dad got told by the guys I grew up with, it's our way or the highway, so he took the highway. And now my dad is a wicked person too, cut off, shunned globally for the last few years he has left on earth, for speaking out against all the shunning and division. I think all of that is very revealing about my origins and what the people there were capable of ecclesiastically, practically how well we all did being known as Christians by our love one for the other. I think at the root of the problem was that we were doing Christianity competitively rather than collaboratively. We didn't help each other generally, even within our tiny subset of a subset of a subsect of fundamentalist Christianity. We tried to outdo each other in many, many ways. We leapt upon people who were lagging behind us in the piety contest, and we ate them whole so that we could grow bigger from that. If a friend or family member was hurting our status by not pulling the spiritual weight the rest of us dragged behind us daily, they got jettisoned, dead weight. Our many divisions were that, were what the apostle describes as biting and devouring one another, fighting for the right to claim to be on the right side, sacrificing any and all human connections in order to be able to feel we were the only right people with the only right views and the only right Christian group left. Right. Completely the opposite of what Jesus and his disciples left us instructions to do. Hurting rather than feeding his sheep chasing them over cliffs to stop them wandering 
toward dangerous cliffs, serving self and church status and reputation and calling it serving the Lord and his people while decimating the latter. Well, not just taking out one member in ten, more like eight of ten once they really got going. The Roman legions had nothing on the assemblies. My family and church fellowship did not help me. They did their best to force me to be something entirely other than what I felt God had made me to be, something other than what my conscience could deal with. They did not help me grow and blossom into who I was becoming when I was young. They distrusted, feared, and ultimately despised me. They didn't like me talking, or thinking, or reading, or making music. And they treated me with suspicion, fear, and loathing, contempt, in the name of Jesus, my sister feels that I have very little say in much of my essential character and nature. Mostly, I'm an awkward, blank-voiced truth-teller. I am unable to play along when I don't believe. I'm unable to convincingly pretend I'm excited about things I think are pointless, empty, stupid, boring, or bad. I do my best, but there are limits, and people complain when I speak up but not nearly as much as they do when I won't say what I'm thinking, because I usually am thinking, and people demand to hear what it is, and failing that, or failing to comprehend whatever it is, they make up wild stuff. Experts say that in relationships, including romantic ones, you can get angry, frustrated, disappointed, or whatever, and come back from that, but once you mainly feel contempt, that relationship is over. You can't salvage it, and that's what happened to me. I was still trying to make it work with my church, trying to give them a chance. My joking about their pamphlet was me recognizing their position of power over my life and trying to be the little child saying the emperor has no clothes or the jester joking truthfully in the presence of the king. Well, the point at which a king or emperor shows he's a true tyrant is the point at which he gets revenge for laughter. Bans Winnie the Pooh in the whole country, slaps a stand-up comedian for attempting comedy. I was heartbroken, frustrated, disappointed, angry, and all that with my church, but what it demonstrated to me was naked contempt and the need to get rid of me. And that was it for us. We were done. I kept trying, but it was over. I was just one of the many, many, many human beings that our tiny group wanted to not bother to try to love, to commune with, work with, be one with, recognize as a brother, and so on. I wasn't treated in some unique, specially bad way. They kicked out or drove off more people than are still currently members there at that place that still denies it has any members or anyone who's been removed from membership against their will. Admittedly, faced with what most of us were faced with, most people ran for the hills rather than waiting to get kicked out. A few of us stood there and waited to see if they'd really toss us over the side. A few of us waited to be sure they would and experienced it firsthand. So now, when people argue with us and express disbelief that any such goings-on ever went on there, we know, because we went through it, we stubborn brethren rejects. I know that I wasn't similar or congruent enough to be accepted as a peer, as a fellow brethren person, for brethren folks to have brethren fellowship with. So I was put out of fellowship and labeled as someone to be denied fellowship with by everyone. Fellowship, that Bible thing, love, kinship, connectedness to peers, to brothers and sisters, that's what fellows means. And does that matter? Does it matter if all really are welcome? 
In a recent online study of the book of First John, Professor Corey Olson points out that John's stated purpose in writing that book at all was to ensure that he and his audience could have fellowship. That's what he says in it. Seriously, my reaction to so that you may, you too may have fellowship with us. I'm like, that's the prize, John? I mean, look, John, I'm sure you're a swell guy and everything. And I would have loved to have some fellowship with you, right? I would have loved to, especially since in the vocabulary of like the churches I've always been at, to fellowship with somebody means to like stand around and have a cup of coffee with while having often kind of awkward conversation after church. Like that's what it meant to fellowship with somebody. Right. So I'm like, okay, I, um, I'm sure John was a great guy. Would have loved to fellowship with him, would have enjoyed a cup of coffee with him. But, um, but that's seriously, that's the sell. (laughs) Like that's the, that's the pay off here. That's what, um, uh, that's the point. Corey points out that the Apostle's goal is not, as we might take from that word, standing around drinking coffee and having somewhat awkward conversation at church with them while eating snacks, but rather having a kind of lifelong unity as a group, not even just to get along, as it were, the ability to work together as a unit for prolonged periods of life. 1 Corinthians is written to address the problem of division, of disunity, and 1 John was written to instill and maintain unity. And the disunity in 1 Corinthians had not progressed to the point of the Christians meeting at different street addresses in unaffiliated churches that didn't speak to one another, it doesn't seem, like we do commonly. The very idea would have appalled the apostle. Upon reaching adulthood, I found that my upbringing had not prepared me to know how to properly deal with other human beings as peers, to love, respect, and connect with very many people, to approach, horizontally so to speak, with open mind, heart, and arms. I was supposed to help, inform, correct, and generally preach at them, all right? Even with women, I wanted to feel I was helping them, was useful, And so I pursued an endless parade of young women who certainly needed a great deal of help of various kinds apart from with their looks. And, as evidenced in that last sentence, I'd been raised to feel absolutely entitled to criticize, dismiss, write off, judge, boycott, cancel, slander, and character assassinate people and groups without thinking about it, to tar entire political movements or groups with that same crappy brush, as it were. Oh, it wasn't that I was claiming to be better than they were. I was just pointing out the clear fact that they were way worse than I was. So something I've spent my life working on and generally failing at is how to do that thing that formerly Plymouth Brethren Christian Church member and psychologist Jill Mitten says marks Brethren folks out as different and damaged. The forming and maintaining of human connections and relationships. Jill says we struggle with that particularly in what Corey would call horizontal relationships, not in the sense of what posture we use for pursuing nocturnal activities, but in terms of connecting to people who are our peers, relating across to people on our same level without trying to suck up to people we think are above us, pursuing endless vanishing mentors, or talking down to and helping people we think are below us, perhaps because their lives were in particularly dark chapters, which made us feel good about reaching out to them. And I agree. Hindsight is twenty twenty. I've seen it 
living through the decades, watching romantic crushes, flings, friends, mentors, role models, Bible study groups, bands, and the like all dry up and blow away. It's not just that I fall out with them, it's that every single person in them seems to fall out with every other single person in them. You can try to hold on to it all, but they're all gone soon enough, and you're alone more and more. One thing that's been liberating is getting the courage and the habit of asking people to work with me because I'm doing a thing. Will you be on my podcast? Will you play on my song? I'm not asking you to hang out or anything big like that. I'm not shooting for friendship or marriage. Can we connect well enough regardless of political affiliation, religious outlook, and flavor of personal problems to work on something? I guess it's pretty important that I have a thing I'm working on at all times then. That is this podcast, Raison d'être. There aren't too many episodes left in this season of the podcast. Two after this one. I guess I need to start reaching some conclusions. My great confusion and anguish in my teens and twenties was that I was different. I didn't fit. I still don't, generally. I never have. I never will. And I have always been boringly straight, white, male, and middle class. I've reached some conclusions about all this. People like us, seekers, thinkers, idea folks, deconstructionists, devil's advocates, and God's prophets alike, are not useful to those getting the job done fast, easily, and as per usual. In fact, we're complications, impediments, obstacles. If things are going well, that is, or you can tell yourself they are. But we're terribly useful if things are going wrong, drying up, drying out, or just aren't working at all and you want to think or talk about all of it, get perspective and make plans. But most people are trying to make it to the grave without ever doing any of that. Or they're swapping non-structural elements in and out without enacting any real change, often simply changing words or failing that, diets, religions, or exercise regimens. Hiring a therapist or life coach to tell them they're fine just the way they are, no change required. I hate change, but sometimes you need it. Human systems need to pretend to serve and welcome everyone, but many just aren't made with people like you and me in mind, or even any capability of ever understanding, let alone valuing anyone who turns out to be anything like us. And we can't force them to. What is it that makes people like us so different? Well, a real inability to seem the same as everyone else, for one thing. To blend. To pass. And that's hard to live with. Most people aren't the same as anyone else either. But most can blend. Successful serial killers, for example, are really good at this. Some people feel weak and ineffective or unlovely, charmless and unlovable most of the time. Some of those try to blame society or demand that we all stop admiring the achievements of the strong and effective, that we stop loving the lovely, charming, and lovable among us, that society start worshipping victims, misfits, and perennial failures. Good luck with that. There's a big competition going on. There aren't enough jobs, likes, views, dollars, and beautiful, successful, sensible young men and women to go around. Not everyone is going to get what they need. Now, Milton, don't be greedy. Let's pass it along and make sure everyone gets a piece. Hey, but last time I didn't receive a piece, and I was told that Just I Just pass. Have... Okay. If, but this, this, if, if, there, there, 
You know what we love? When people have an obvious handicap and they achieve great things anyway. Oh, it's fine if they have no great handicap and achieve something great. For example, on Instagram, there's Sophie Lloyd, who is pretty enough to just bank on that like a host of others do, but who learned to play guitar this well anyway and wants pretty much all of your attention on how she sounds, not how she looks. Thank you guys so much for hanging around to the end of the video. I hope you enjoyed my cover of More Than a Feeling by Boston. No handicap there, just a choice to not rest on her lovely laurels, to be more than just a pretty everything, while still being that too. But then, there's teenage Peter Denkelson, who has a mismatched left side of his face, and an almost entirely missing and not working at all left ear due to a genetic birth defect. And, knowing that Paul Stanley of KISS has done his whole musical career with his black-dyed hair covering the same problem with his own not-really-there left ear, Peter is on the internet, too, smiling his drooping smile and playing like this, only able to hear himself out of one ear for groups of children. But did society, did this part of it, this group or that one forget about you, not even notice or understand you to begin with, reject you, push you out of it entirely? Happens all the time. I can't recommend trying to burn the whole thing to the ground, though, demanding the dictionary be entirely rewritten to make you feel more seen or otherwise taking revenge or trying to wield forms of censorship and tyranny yourself. I really can't. I feel the temptation, of course. Some Swedish heavy metal bands are direct and simply burn to the ground the churches they grew up being forced to attend and in which some of them were molested. And you can do that, too, if you're willing to be a horrible person who does horrible things, that is. And you don't need that. Leave human groups standing, even if they hurt you. You might need to get a clear picture of what happened, of course. It happened to you, after all, and people are lying about it and about you. So be clear about exactly what happened and didn't happen, but don't wreak bloody vengeance outright, because that makes you a bad person. Also, it's a terrible feeling to go up against the entire group and lose. And it feels worse to go up against the entire group and have it simply turn its back on you and pretend there never was such a thing as a you to begin with. Don't try to get revenge. 
If they need to view you as dangerous to them, bad, a threat, there's no reason you need to become that for real, just for their sake. Kindness is a thing. If someone's sick or weak or little or old, poor, unintelligent, awkward, charmless, and unloved, it's called for. Not pity, kindness. And that begins at home, with you. Loving yourself, admiring your own strength and effectiveness, being charmed by your own charm, being your own biggest fan, that's simply not possible for many of us. We're not all of us narcissists, but maybe we can learn to be kind to ourselves, to not neglect or abuse, reject or berate ourselves unduly. Not self-love, maybe, but self-acceptance, possibly. Be kind to yourself. Try it. Not because you deserve it, certainly not only when you feel like you deserve it, do it because that's what one does. Mother cats and dogs look after their kittens and puppies because that's what a mammal does, unless it's a neglectful monster of some kind. So you look after you. Get what you need, whether any groups at all, tribes or clubs exist for your benefit to help out people just like you. Be kind to yourself and get what works. I need to work. Work works for me. Sometimes even work with other people if they're around. So I try to remember to try to do that, if anyone's up for it. Speaking of trying to work with people who are around, I used to buy guitar strings from George in his store. Now, George has patiently played drums for me on a large number of songs that really aren't George's style. My loud stuff, usually. I get him to play more bombastically than he normally would. George is more of a folky country type, usually, so I thought this song would be perfect to let George be himself on. George loves playing banjo and mandolin and things like that. Here's George playing everything on a song he wrote that isn't about Justin Trudeau. And soon she's on the other side of daylight. figure out why he's not famous. I can't figure out why George isn't famous either. We recorded drums for that one while he was over at my place doing his parts on mine. For my song this episode, I handed George a pair of brushes I'd bought from him when he'd had a store. As George's own brushes were all worn to crap, and George has a store no longer. He's losing his house, too. George's life sure is in a particularly dark chapter. I was immediately filled with the urge to try to help him. If I was a church guy instead of an English teacher, I'd say a dark season rather than a dark chapter. But as it is, I think that sounds ridiculous, so I've never gone through seasons in my Christian life when I've used it. But this thing, it's not a normal song with verses of uniform lengths, so I knew I'd have to loop George's drum parts. George had left his drums set up and mics and levels all adjusted for a few days, so not wanting to disrupt any of that, I pulled the cable from the drum mic set to the same approximate level I wanted to sing and play at, so not as loudly as a snare drum that's got a mic right over it, and I plugged that cable into one of the last mics I wasn't using for drums. This mic, actually. 
and quickly sang bed tracks for the remaining few songs on the album. I just used the one mic for guitar and vocals, singing to click tracks to keep my rhythm somewhat consistent. Why not dig the blade in just a little bit deeper? Then I plugged the mic cable back in and I played drums on the last song myself just so I could say I did it. got George to play on the various bed tracks I now had when he came back over a few days later with his dog Rascal. I'm sure George had little idea how this Arlo Guthrie-sounding story song would work, though he knew the original, but we did drums for one chorus with the old Dave lyrics in there still. for about two minutes of verse with no vocal anything. Off home George went with one of my better microphones with the idea that I'd construct the song out of what we'd done so he could record banjo for it, likely at his place, with said borrowed microphone. I looped the guitar from the bed track and the verse drums George played for ten minutes, and told the newly updated story over top of that, stopped and pasted the chorus in every time it happened to come around, ending up with verses of very different lengths. And then I emailed the whole mess to George, who emailed me back a pair of banjo parts for it, recorded with the worst of my two AKG-414s, the, the one that looked like it had been punted out onto the back lawn when I bought it used, and was repaired with a hot glue gun, but which still sounds pretty sweet. Then I tried to play bass, like on the Dukes of Hazard theme. This was one of my original sped-up voices songs from first getting a four-track recorder in the early 90s and finally being able to do that properly. Now, there is a feature in Pro Tools that digitally raises the pitch of sounds, but it's very different from using a tape motor speed to do that. It's fine for talking, but for singing? For that, you need not just a sped-up voice, but one in precisely the correct pitch so the singing is in tune. So, with the tape machine... You record the song normally, but with the machine recording it while going its higher speed for sound quality. After you've done that, to make the song play back normally, you have to run the tape motors at that same faster speed, or the song will sound too slow. So you do that. That's how you're supposed to play it. 
Then, though, you flip the switch over to the slower speed, which isn't fully half the speed or anything, and you sing in your normal voice to the now slowed down song. Then, when you flip the switch to put the main track back to normal by playing it at the faster speed at which it was originally recorded, the stuff you just sang with the tape running more slowly speeds up significantly and sounds chipmunky, but remains in pitch because you were singing along correctly with the other track when it was slowed down. And this is what it said. I went to the moon. With the computer, you sing normally to the track going normal speed, and then you can digitally pitch shift the voice you want to sound chipmunky. If you want it to be the correct pitch, the only option really is to raise it up an entire octave which is too much for it to sound quite right, natural, so to speak. You don't really want to double the speed outright. Maybe 1.5 times would be perfect. And on the computer, it sounds shrill and digitally. So I tried the lazy digital way, but I didn't like it. So it took extra work but I exported the song to a single track on a cassette tape on the higher speed in my 90s four-track recorder, sang a to-be-sped-up voice on each of the three remaining tracks in the four-track recorder, recorded to that original song track slowed down, then sped the whole thing back up and played the recorded individual chipmunk voices back out to the computer, sliding them into the correct time in the song. I needed to do that because I have no way to synchronize the tape machine to the computer perfectly, and anyway, tape tends to wander a bit over time. And this left me with a version of the Dingo song for the 21st century. I was walking down the street, minding my own business one warm day in July, when I suddenly felt a sharp, sneaky pain high up on the back of my left thigh, almost, one would have to admit, the buttock itself. So I went to the hospital to enlist the services of a licensed healthcare professional. He told me, Son, that was a dingo bite. They're real bad this time of year. You have to exercise more caution. Uh, here's some pamphlets, brochures, and leaflets that will make you aware of the many serious health concerns associated with dingoes and precautions you can take to prevent contracting any further infection by unprotected, intimate association with them. It's nothing to be ashamed of, really. Many are each walking in my office with dingo-related health problems almost every single day. I read one of the pamphlets, and this is what it said. 
Ding goes like to bite your buttocks. They advance from the rear and they open up wide. Ding goes to let you see them coming. They need everyone to take their side. If you know what we mean. I went to the movies one fine Tuesday evening and enjoyed myself immensely. At a movie that wasn't about stuff exploding or people falling down. Outside on the sidewalk afterward, though, I came face to face with a bespectacled young man of about 15, wearing a brown and orange plaid suit with matching blue socks and purple tie, standing on an overturned garbage can and shouting. I stopped to listen to the content of his impassioned outpouring and made out the following words. Did not the film screened within the four walls of this establishment contain a graphic scene of an innocent dingo being slowly disemboweled with an orange coffee stir stick? Nope, I had to reply upon a few moments' reflection, startling him so badly that he nearly lost his balance and needed a good puff from his inhaler before continuing. Leaning over me and goggling owlishly, he boomed more loudly and with conviction. Did not the particular film in question present more than 15 scenes involving young, attractive, scantily clad dingoes cavorting and carrying on in a most debauched, lewd, and indecent manner outside a place of public worship as part of an occult ritual designed to summon demonic communist forces? Actually, no, I returned. But there was a wedding. Was the film not populated with young, anti-establishment, rebel-figure dingoes using language characterized by obscenity, blasphemy, and irony? Look, man, I said nearly as calmly as he, the only dingoes I saw, apart from your own good self, accosting me on this public thoroughfare, were the ones who kept stealing my popcorn, spilling things on the floor, and loudly criticizing everything about the film. I mentioned it to an usher, but all he did was smile and say the following words. Dingoes don't like entertainment, they can find depravity in everything. Dingoes always preach their sermons about not enjoying anything, if you know what I mean. I was picking up my diploma from a fine educational institution one lovely morning in May, and as I was collecting it, I was approached by a spherical little person of indeterminate species with hair strategically shaved and dyed in improbable shades of carefully styled outrage. I can't help but notice that you're collecting your credentials from an institutionally bigoted rape factory there, they said. They was clearly hoping to start a conversation. Well, yeah, I'm finally done. Four years and tens of thousands of dollars later, I said, hoping to move on. Time to get me a better job. I hope you don't mind me asking, did each course devote a third of instructional hours to multiplicity, evening an incursion of sexually inexplicable individuals, historically sidelined dingoes and dingo-identifying persons, they asked, in a querulous tone of voice that indicated they hoped this was not the case. Look, man, I'm not sure what religion you are, but I'm not inter... I began... We is certainly not part of a religion, they interrupted like they was annoyed. We is done with toxic divinity in all of its forms. No religion for us. We am just interested in checking our beliefs and those of any institutions with which you are associated with to make sure they're in line with currently orthodox dogma and with challenging you to challenge aid and critically destructify your problemific and sinful worldview so you can start to live a change-fostering, genocide-healing, virtuous reality that makes a difference. I see, I said, with the sinking impression that I kind of did. 
Did your program of factual oppression and logicalism give equal space to differently competent individuals and those for whom facts information are not part of their chosen learning styles, they said, raising an eyebrow hopefully? I don't know. I just want to work, I replied. Gotta work. Work is whitish, they snarled. A part of our pioneering, rollist, anthropological power hierarchy. We need to do better. Sit down and speak up. Stand up for silencing dissenting voices. Step forward and not take this line down. Not anymore. Concepts are murder. Logic is the master's tools. I see. Have you got a job for me? I asked. For you? Not for you. You don't have the correct equalifications. What you need to do is finally take a step back and allow dingoes with callers to work instead of you. It's time, they explained. Do you work? I asked. Well, no, apart from my continually crusading for uprightness, lack of specificity and categorization in all things, and the enforced sameness of thinking, feeling, and lifeification. They was proud of this. That's a full-time job. I barely have time to get off Twitter most days. Do you have a moment for me to talk to you about our Lord and Savior Judith Butler and Kimberly Crenshaw, their prophet? They asked eagerly. We're having a struggle session next Sunday I think you'd really enjoy. I'm kind of busy. I told them, taking a step away from where they were standing. All right, but it's time for this country to stop eating rape, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches of oppression, they said warmly, enslaving Mother Earth to serve the male gaze. I hope we can all agree about that, at least. And off they went, leaving a wave of secularly sanctimonious piety in their wake like a cloud of incense trailing a choir person. Is they a student here? I asked the secretary who'd given me my diploma... Not exactly, but they sits on the committee for variety, leveling, and equalification of sexually incoherent and historically sidelined dingoes and dingo-identifying individuals and collectives. So they gets a stipend for that, and they was here picking it up. But the fact is, she leaned in and said in confidence... Dingoes are the writing English Religious zealots with an axe to grind Dingoes always preach their gospel Everyone that they can find If you know what I mean Later in the year, I was leaving the doctor's office one rainy afternoon when a pudgy, squat, bald individual with an impressive red beard and very clean work boots stopped me outside Hey brother! You didn't get stabbed by government agents in there to vax infect you with their dingo plasma spines, did you? To take your freedom? He asked me this in an aggressively friendly tone of voice. No, but I did have a particularly awkward prostate exam, I admitted. I got bitten by a dingo, see, and... I hear ya, I hear ya. Just like the government, eh? Pain in the ass. Hey, do you have a moment for me to tell you how Justin Dingo and the democratic liberalities are taking our God-given freedoms and plugging us into the simulation? We gotta take this country back for us hard-working folks, man. Look it up. It's all there. Time to wake up to what's happening to our country. I only need a moment of your time. He looked at me like a dog with a stick it wanted me to throw. Not really. Kind of busy. I need to get to work, I told him. And maybe find a better job. Do you have a job for me, my hard-working friend? Ah, sorry, brother. I've been on disability for months myself, man. I don't know what I'd do without my YouTube channel to keep me going. He confided in a conspiratorial tone, slapping me on the back. Nothing but truth on my channel. All right. Thanks anyway. I'd better go, I told him. Okay, brother, but just don't trust the corporate-owned so-called news. 
Nothing new there, just old, old lies and a whole mess of made-up, topsy-turvy, upside-down, wrong-headed nonsense to keep us under their regime, to take our freedom, and make frogs gay with additives they're putting in 5G cell phone towers built in Wuhan. His eyes were filled with the religious fire of a thousand Vic lighters. Wake up and smell the tyranny, sheeple. Am I right? No more fake news for me. He patted himself on the chest in a friendly fashion. Um, I've been watching the 60s vampire soap opera Dark Shadows, I said, trying to walk away. The news is kind of unconvincing lately. Dramatic, though. Cool, cool. Hey, here's a free pamphlet about the costly freedom Twitter and YouTube Reddit locals podcast by Tim the Truth Tiger Henderson. That's me. He pressed it into my hand. It's about, you know, our freedom. Like the government, those bastards. My ex-wife, Tim, please move along and stop bothering our patients with your pamphlets, shouted the receptionist of the doctor's office, standing in the doorway of the place. And off scuttled my new friend, muttering to himself about his freedom of speech being ripped from his patriotic fingers by a big pharma and how there was no pulling the wool over his eyes. Does he come around here often? I asked the medical receptionist. More and more lately, she admitted. And then she said... Dingoes loving fear their country They claim its leaders are stupid jerks Dingoes will alert and warn you But the one thing they won't do is work If you know what I mean So patient listener to this long and transparently Arlo Guthrie-inspired cautionary tale Please be prepared for the dingoes They will stop you in the stores telling you not to shop in them. They will be on your TV telling you what not to watch. They will tell you what not to talk about and what words are correct and which words are not correct. And they will come to your door to see if you'd like to join them or give them money. They will tell you to fear the air you breathe, the food you eat, the people you know, and the sun itself. They will preach and preach and preach rather like I'm doing right now. Though the female of the species is undoubtedly the more aggressive of the dingoes, male dingoes are possessed of a bureaucratic, inveterate sneakiness that is not to be underestimated either. The symptoms of a dingo bite are the following. A painful lesion near the rectal area, a general feeling of lethargy, profuse sweating, difficulty breathing, paranoia, and eventually becoming more or less resigned to being accused of any number of completely ridiculous things, all very imaginative, researched, and well thought out in the way that only tweets from teens with crippling ADHD are. So, remember these important words from Dingoes and You, concerns to worry you, worries to concern you. Dingoes feed on reputations They will rip them up and tear them down Dingoes love to catch you Thinking better shut your mouth when they're around If you know what I mean